Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The DOJ says Trump kept classified documents as part of their reasons for opposing his request for a special master. Can Trump prove he declassified them? A memo reminding DOJ personnel not to talk with Congress. It comes amid concerns that the department is trying to silence whistleblowers. A strict new gun law is coming to New York State tomorrow. It'll limit concealed carry in most public places. It's already facing legal backlash. The state of Florida sues the FDA. Governor Ron DeSantis accuses the agency of preventing people from paying lower prices for medicine. The FDA authorizes the use of Moderna and Pfizer booster shots now designed to target Omicron. And the upstart Live Golf Tour has convinced six more PGA players to join their league. But several hurdles remain, which could slow their momentum. On Tuesday, the Department of Justice filed its response opposing former President Trump's request for a special master to review documents seized at his home. And the DOJ again said that he withheld classified documents. Trump maintains he declassified them. A constitutional expert tells NTD's Arlene Richards how a president declassifies documents. The Justice Department is again claiming that former President Trump is obstructing justice. The department made the accusation in its recent response to Trump's request for a special master to review documents seized from his Florida home. At the core of the department's response is an allegation that Trump withheld classified documents. Trump has maintained that he declassified the documents during his presidency. I spoke to John Malcolm of the Heritage Foundation to find out the protocol for how a sitting president declassifies documents. Is there a protocol that a sitting president must follow in order to declassify documents? No, I don't believe so. So there are various statutes that set forth the procedure for how documents get classified and declassified. Uh, but the Supreme Court in a 1988 case, Department of Navy versus Egan, said that the president's authority to classify and declassify documents doesn't come from a statute. It comes from the Constitution and his authorities under Article II as commander and chief. He said there's no procedure set out in the Constitution for how a president can declassify documents. He explained how it could have been done. Now, the prudent thing, of course, to do is to document when a president declassifies a document so that there's no question that he did so. That hasn't happened here, at least no document's been presented to date. So that creates a factual question about whether President Trump did, in fact, declassify these documents while he was still president. Malcolm said in other instances during his presidency, Trump ordered that records be declassified and then they were published. The Supreme Court has said that a president has that authority as commander in chief under Article II of the Constitution, and in the same way that he has the pardon power and can just say, I pardon you, once he exercises that authority, he has exercised that authority, whether it is reduced to writing or not. The Trump team is expected to have submitted a reply today, and a hearing has been set for Thursday. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And in a new memo, the DOJ reminds its employees not to talk with Congress. 
It comes at a sensitive time as FBI whistleblowers allege bias in critical investigations. Do not talk to Congress. That's the message carried in a Tuesday memo that Attorney General Merrick Garland sent to DOJ employees. The memo reiterates the department's policy of prohibiting communication with members of Congress, citing a provision that says, quote, no department employee may communicate with senators, representatives, or congressional staff without approval by the Office of Legislative Affairs. The provision further adds that DOJ employees should immediately pass on all congressional inquiries. The department-wide reminder comes in the wake of stunning whistleblower disclosures. Republican Senator Chuck Grassley revealed in a letter to FBI leadership this month that numerous whistleblowers have approached his office, alleging, quote, a deeply rooted political infection that has spread to investigative activity into former President Trump and Hunter Biden. That's adding him saying that the DOJ has a history of failure of being transparent to the United States Congress. Garland insists in the memo that the policy is not intended to limit whistleblower protections. Meanwhile, Republican Senator Tom Cotton wrote to DOJ employees, no matter what the memo says, you are protected by federal law if you contact my office to blow the whistle. Reporting by Iris Tao, NTD News. An FBI employee in Utah has been arrested and charged with molesting five underage girls. He's currently being held without bail. The employee is identified as 65-year-old Robert Alexander Smith. He faces four felony counts of aggravated sexual abuse of a child, four misdemeanor counts of lewdness involving a child, and two misdemeanor counts of lewdness. According to court documents, Smith had forced two girls to touch him inappropriately and touched at least three other girls inappropriately. This allegedly took place in 2020 at Smith's home in Stansbury Park, Utah. The FBI's Salt Lake City Division said they are aware of the arrest and that they take allegations of misconduct very seriously. And a tough new gun law is taking effect in New York State tomorrow. Many public places and even some private ones will be off limits to people who carry concealed firearms, even if they have a permit. The Concealed Carry Improvement Act is taking effect in New York State on September 1st and is already under challenge in the courts by civil rights groups. The state's new law requires applicants for carry permits to be of good moral character. A previous New York law instructed them to demonstrate a special need for self-defense, but that law was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in June. According to Amy Swearer, a legal fellow with the Heritage Foundation, the two are basically the same thing. New York to simply move their discretion from, well, we get to determine who really needs a gun to, well, we get to determine who is really good enough uh, morally to carry a gun. It's essentially the same test, but reworded and sort of repackaged. And if the first one fails, this one, I think, certainly uh, would, would fail under the Supreme Court's test. New York's governor on Wednesday said she doesn't agree with the Supreme Court's decision, especially because it came just days after a shooting in Buffalo. So at a time when we're having a national reckoning on gun safety, what we can do to protect our citizens, that decision wasn't just negligent, it was reprehensible. Reprehensible. NTD reached out to the governor's office to ask how the new law can be constitutionally upheld, since it's so similar to the old one. We didn't hear back before broadcast. The new act not only affects getting permits, but also creates many so-called gun-free zones throughout the state, 
Some of those places are establishments that serve alcohol, daycare facilities and playgrounds, schools, entertainment venues, libraries, houses of worship, polling locations, public transit, and Manhattan's Times Square. The law also declares every private property a gun-free zone. Property owners have to put up a sign clearly permitting guns in order to overturn the state assumption. Swearer says this rule and the law's other gun-free zones will most likely be ruled unconstitutional. And I think that's going to run afoul of the court's test in Bruin, where they said, look, this has to be consistent with the historical tradition of how we've regulated firearms in this country. And New York's new rule just does not do that. The Supreme Court ruling also requires seven other blue states to make it easier to get carry permits. Several of these states are defying the ruling or are slow-walking the changes needed to comply. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. The state of Florida is suing the Food and Drug Administration. Governor Ron DeSantis is accusing the FDA of preventing Floridians from getting lower-priced medicine. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. What we are paying right now in the U.S. pill to pill compared to Canada was, you know, 100% more basically. Right? Florida officials gathered at one of the many distribution facilities around Florida where they plan to store and distribute medicine bought from Canada at lower prices. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis explains. Obviously, Big Pharma is very powerful in Congress and with uh, different people in Washington, and so they're able to structure this a lot of times in ways that benefit them over the average American. Uh, but we want to say, is there something a state could do? Well, we found there was a provision of a law from 20, 2003 that said states could apply to HHS to purchase drugs from Canada. And so these are the same drugs that you purchase here. They're just like, you know, 80% cheaper or 75% cheaper. He then explained that some federal agencies gave him pushback about the Canada Drug Importation Program, but former President Donald Trump approved it. And Florida submitted their application to the Food and Drug Administration soon after, at the end of 2020. It's now been 630 days. Florida is now suing the FDA for unreasonable delay in approving its application. A Florida top health official said this. I cannot believe that we actually have to sue the FDA to do its job. But why are Americans paying more for pharmaceuticals than the rest of the world? I asked this question to the founder of ACOS MD, a telemedicine organization. So most of the countries like in the UK, the governmental agency and government is directly involved in purchasing the medications and putting the price on them. Similarly in Canada, we have the government plays an active role in terms of regulating the prices of the pharmaceuticals. In our country, we have not done that. Government has paid for these services but has not gotten involved in terms of regulating the prices. We reached out to the FDA for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is now authorizing updated COVID vaccine booster shots from Moderna and Pfizer. Both companies submitted applications to the FDA for emergency use authorization. It's the first time updated vaccines have received emergency use authorization in the U.S. Both boosters combine the original vaccine with one that targets the BA4 and BA5 Omicron subvariants. Moderna's vaccine is now authorized for people 18 and older, and Pfizer's 12 and older. 
The CDC needs to authorize them as well before the shots can be administered. The CDC's vaccine advisory group is now set to vote on Thursday on whether to support recommending the boosters. And California is one step closer to passing a law that would punish doctors deemed to be promoting false and misleading information related to COVID-19. Those doctors would be found to be acting unprofessionally and could lose their medical licenses. The state Senate passed the bill on Monday, and Governor Gavin Newsom has about a week and a half to sign or veto it, or do nothing, and it will become law. Earlier today, I spoke with epidemiologist Dr. Peter McCullough for his views. Dr. McCullough has been outspoken about alternate treatments for COVID-19 and about the COVID vaccines. He's also a co-author of the book, The Courage to Face COVID-19. Dr. Peter McCullough, welcome to our show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Now, this California bill says that misinformation is anything that's contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus. It's meant to protect patients, but some critics worry that it actually could lead to intimidation or censorship of doctors who disagree with the government. What's your take on it? I'm concerned. I think it's going to be misused. There's no such thing as misinformation in the medical sciences. There's simply scientific data and two or more interpretive points of view. Uh, We can't strip the civil liberties of right to free speech and, and medical discourse. It's necessary for progress. The bill should be dropped immediately. The bill's sponsor, Democratic State Assembly member Evan Lowe, says that doctors have to be held accountable in order to ensure the public's trust in them. Are you concerned at all that this bill could actually hurt the public's trust in doctors when they know that they're beholden to the government's opinions? They will, especially uh, in a novel coronavirus pandemic. We're into our third year. The state of knowledge is evolving. Uh, For doctors to be muzzled and not to freely discuss the evolving problem is going to hurt the public, no doubt about it, and damage public trust. As you mentioned that during a situation like a pandemic, of course, knowledge is continually developing because just by the very nature of it, there's so much we don't know. And there will be treatments that may work that just don't have double-blind clinical trials attached to them. So do you think that this bill could in some way ultimately harm patients? I think it will. The bill will work to deny novel approaches, prevention and treatment uh, because there won't be fair discussion of what works and what doesn't work. Only the patients will be hurt by this bill. I think doctors will retreat. Uh, they'll work to try to protect themselves professionally, but the patients will be, will be damaged. And do you think this will mean doctors will leave California? I think many doctors will find the practice environment at this point in time. Uh, it's, it's simply not conducive to advancement of medical science in many who value their civil liberties, they value the importance of medical discourse and academic progress, they'll head to states that encourage medical meetings and communication and not discourage them. How do you think this bill could affect the art of medicine? You know, the art of medicine is completely dependent on medical discourse. People know this. Doctors go on rounds together as groups and they discuss things. No one has agency over the truth or information. No one has the ability or the, you know, the police power to declare misinformation. Everything's fair game for discussion. Uh, For a bill to come down like this, uh, this is reminiscent of nascent Nazi Germany and the the, uh, Office of Propaganda 
that was led by Goebbels. It, it's really reminiscent of a totalitarian way of thinking. This bill may become law fairly soon. What do you think should happen next in the best case The bill scenario? should be dropped immediately. Doctors should raise protests. Uh, and then doctors, if it goes into uh, action, I think doctors who are free thinkers, who want to advance the science, they'll find ways to have medical discourse and advance things uh, and try to basically circumvent this bill. It's a bad bill. It should be dropped. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Peter McCullough. Thank you. Up next, a heated exchange with the White House press secretary. A reporter presses her about illegal drugs coming into the U.S. over the southern border. And Jackson, Mississippi residents are still dealing with a water crisis due to failure at a treatment plant. Schools and businesses are shutting down. That and more after this short break. International Overdose Awareness Day. And at today's White House press briefing, Fox News correspondent Peter Ducey asked the press secretary about illegal drugs coming across the southern border. 300 overdoses a day now. We know how the fentanyl is coming into the country. It's coming right across the southern border. The DEA administrator says so. So when is the president going to do something? So I will say that uh you have seen a 200% increase of fentanyl seizures, which means that uh, we, are, we are doing the job of catching drug traffickers. 200%, hold on, 200% increase, just and again, Americans seizures. Americans' life expectancies are going down uh, at a rate not seen in a century, and part of that is being driven by drug overdoses. So what is the president going to do? And we, ag we agree, we agree. We see those same numbers as well. But the fact that we are, uh, you know, we are securing the border, uh, the fact that we are securing record levels of funding uh, from DHS so they can stop illicit drugs from entering into the country, the, the fact that uh, it's not just drug traffickers that we're dealing with as well, we're stopping stopping financiers. This is what's happening with this under this administration. Look, the White House press secretary says taking dangerous drugs off the streets is a top priority of the Biden administration. And she adds that President Biden cares about the problem. The Drug Enforcement Administration is observing an alarming new trend of brightly colored fentanyl made to look like candy. The DEA says drug traffickers are using it to attract kids and teenagers. The agency said law enforcement began seizing the brightly colored rainbow fentanyl earlier this month. Drug dealers sell rainbow fentanyl in multiple forms, according to the DEA. These can be pills, powder, or even blocks that resemble sidewalk chalk. Just recently, authorities seized this kind of rainbow fentanyl resembling sidewalk chalk in Portland, Oregon, on two occasions. They also confiscated about 15,000 multicolored pills from one individual in West Virginia. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that is up to 50 times stronger than heroin. Traffickers often mix it with other drugs like heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine. Synthetic opioids caused 66% of U.S. overdose deaths in 2021. And on Friday, U.S. Customs and Border Protection seized $11.8 million worth of cocaine 
from a truck that was supposed to be carrying only baby wipes. It happened at the Columbia Solidarity Bridge that connects Texas and the Mexican state of Nuevo Laredo. The bridge crosses the Rio Grande. Officers initially sent the truck for a second inspection. Then, officials say a canine and non-intrusive inspection turned up nearly 2,000 packages containing roughly 1,500 pounds of alleged cocaine. And Android users wanting to use the Truth Social app may be disappointed. Google's parent company isn't allowing the app in the Google Play Store. NTD's Sean Marshall has more details. Former President Donald Trump's social media platform, Truth Social, has not yet been approved for distribution on Alphabet Incorporated's Google Play Store. A Google spokesperson on Tuesday said Truth Social has not done a good job moderating the content on the platform. As a result, the app remains unavailable to around 44% of U.S. smartphone users, according to Axios. I spoke with a founder of a social media management platform about this. I asked Elaine Gregory, the CEO of CrowdShare, how much Truth Social is losing by not being on the Google Play Store. A third of the world uses Android. I mean, you're talking about a massive amount of people that won't have access to it, um, to, their, to their platform. I mean, if, if we lost the ability to be on Android, we would almost have to shut our company down or at least, you know, find out why, you know, and try to fix that. Trump Media and Social Group said in a statement, some of our competitors' apps are allowed in the Google Play Store despite rampantly violating Google's prohibition on sexual content and other policies, whereas Truth Social has zero tolerance for sexually explicit content. So whenever you're creating an app, you have to, or any program really, you have to look at what the legalities are. And it may not be the law of the land, but it is certainly the service provider in which or the vehicle in which they are going to get that to. The Truth Social CEO, Devin Nunes, last week claimed the decision about when the app would be available on Android was up to Google. But Google says the ball is in Truth Social's court. Sean Marshall, NTD News. And states all over the country have raked in more money than they spent. Experts say it's a result of leaner budgets, federal COVID stimulus, and an economy that was growing before COVID hit. And now, many states are giving back to their residents. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Many states are having budget surpluses, which means they brought in more tax revenue than they need. At least 31 states have enacted tax cuts or rebates this year, and more are to follow. We've had more states cut individual income taxes in the last year and a half than we've ever had in any previous period in history. Jared Walzak is with the Tax Foundation. Walzak says states want to attract more individuals and businesses, especially in a time when many work remotely and may choose where to live based on the tax burden. Missouri is considering a $700 million permanent tax reduction. Idaho's lawmakers are deciding tomorrow whether to give more tax breaks. California, which had a $97 billion surplus, is sending out tax rebates. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says he'll give Floridians the biggest tax cuts in the history of the state. This is going to be a great tool to be able to combat inflation for states, to be able to give money back for citizens, to be able to kind of make up that gap. Nick Stark is a policy analyst at the American Legislative Exchange Council. Stark says Americans can use the money to invest in their businesses, which raises supply. Democrats generally prefer one-time rebates, while Republicans generally prefer permanent rate reductions. Jared Walzak from the Tax Foundation seems to be less of a fan of rebates. 
it doesn't change the long-term economic decision-making because it's a one-time transfer. If you put more money into the economy by lowering taxes, you're changing the incentives for investment, uh, for the sort of things that can address the supply side of our crisis right now. If you're only doing tax rebates, you're changing the demand side. And we have lots of demand right now. We're struggling on supply. Some experts think tax cuts and rebates have an inflationary effect and are not the right thing to do, but not everyone agrees. Inflation is caused when you have more money coming into the system. Robert Janetsky is the president of economic consulting firm Classical Principles. Janetsky says inflation happens only when the government puts more money into the economy. But reshifting money from government to individuals is a totally different thing and does not have any impact whatsoever on inflation. Janetsky always prefers permanent tax cuts. He says cutting rates allows for more production, which will eventually reduce inflation. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And residents of Jackson, Mississippi are dealing with a water crisis. Many of the 180,000 people who live in the area had to stockpile water close their businesses, and keep their children home. That's after the governor told residents to avoid drinking public water until the water treatment plant is fixed. It's not business as usual for restaurants in Jackson, Mississippi. The ones that are open, like the Iron Horse Grill, are operating without reliable running water. State officials have told residents to avoid using public water indefinitely as they scramble to repair a long-neglected water treatment plant, which has now broken down. Andy Niesenson is the general manager of the Iron Horse Grill. It's incredibly frustrating. And, you know, yes, I am upset. I am passionate because, you know, this is something that, you know, I went to school for. I've got 20-plus years in this business, and we've had incredible success in Jackson. But without water... We're kind of, you know, our hand, we're handcuffed. We can't do anything. After record rainfall and flooding over the weekend, Obi Curtis Water Plant is no longer pumping out clean water. Please stay safe. Do not drink the water. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves declared a state of emergency for some 180,000 residents in Jackson and surrounding communities, called up the National Guard and reiterated the urgent need to get the plant fixed. The current crisis follows a string of disruptions to the city's water supply in recent years caused by high lead levels, bacterial contamination, and storm damage. Now, Neesonson says his restaurant and employees are suffering even more. I mean, we're spending on average between $2,000 more per, per week on canned beverages, bottled water, bagged ice, additional trash pickups. On Tuesday, the White House said it's ready to assist Mississippi once it receives an official request from the state. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, a controversial California bill that would have allowed teenagers to consent to receiving any vaccine is now dead. And the upstart Live Golf Tour has convinced six more PGA players to defect. But NTD's Dave Martin speaks with a golf historian who says hurdles still remain, which could slow their momentum. That and more coming up. Welcome back. 
Another California job-related bill bites the dust. The controversial bill would have allowed minors to consent to receiving any vaccines. But it was pulled just hours before lawmakers voted on whether to advance the bill to the governor. Several parent organizations told NTD's Daniel Hall about their efforts opposing the bill. California State Senator Scott Weiner announced Wednesday morning that he is pulling Senate Bill 866. The now dead bill would have allowed children 15 years and older to receive any vaccine without parental consent. Several parent organizations gathered in Sacramento for a rally against the bill also on Wednesday morning. Tara Thornton, co-founder of one of those groups, revealed the bill's history. Originally the bill was for all children 12 and up. There was so much bipartisan pushback and community pushback that the author, against his desires, was forced to take an amendment to take it up to age 15. Still, even with that amendment, it didn't shake the bipartisan opposition within the legislature or from the community at large because this isn't about anything but age. And it's we will not negotiate our parental rights and lower the age of consent on important medical decisions below 18. Lawmakers' support and opposition was split in the state's two houses. Nicole Pearson, lawyer and founder of Facts Law Truth Justice, was planning on filing a lawsuit if the bill turned into law. She says lawmakers are trying to separate parents and children. It's actually another brick in the wall that the California legislature has built between parents and children. Another, another brick in the divide between parents and children. And quite frankly, not only a parent's moral and ethical obligation to take care of their child, but actual, actually their legal obligation to take their children. And, and it's a huge violation of that. Weiner said in a Wednesday statement the decision to pull SB 866 came after he realized the bill would not receive enough votes to pass. He thanked the coalition of students, health care providers and parents who supported his bill. Amy Bond, president of Protection of the Educational Rights of Kids, said there was a celebratory mood on the Capitol steps after the bill was pulled. Us working together, collectively holding the line, all of the people who are engaged, um, calling their legislators, being up at the Capitol, all the work that's being done, it, it is a tremendous effort, I have to say, um, on behalf of everyone that you know, we've come this far. On Tuesday, Denise Aguilar, fellow co-founder of Freedom Angels, called on parents to take more civic action. Our call to action is to show up, show up and listen to the organizations and the parents who have been pushing back on this and really show up to the assembly floor session. This is the last day for any bills to pass and go to the governor's desk. And we really, uh, we, we encourage people to be a part of this process to engage in civics. SB 866 was one of the many jab-related bills that was not only introduced under pandemic lockdown policies, but also failed to pass amid pushback. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. And staying in California, angry residents are protesting against the latest movie that started filming in their Los Angeles neighborhood. They say it attracts dangerous illegal street takeovers in their area and people who try to replicate the stunts. Production of the latest The Fast and the Furious movie, Fast X, was underway in Los Angeles on August 26. But angry protesters nearby demanded an end to filming in their neighborhood. For Damien Kevitt, founder of Streets Are For Everyone, who organized the protest, it's a personal issue. He lost part of a leg after being hit by a vehicle. This community has been requesting for years 
to handle the fact that it's become a tourist destination for street racing ever since the first Fast and Furious film. And to have it, the films be filmed again in this neighborhood, this, the community is concerned that it's only going to get worse. At nighttime, you're, you're woken up quite a few times. And then your kids are crying and screaming because they're in terror of like, what the heck is going on? Um, it's, uh, it's become a big problem for us. And I think enough is enough. The franchise has made billions of dollars in its 21-year run, with some of the film's iconic scenes shot in the neighborhood. But residents of Angelino Heights near downtown L.A. say they've had enough of movie fans performing dangerous stunts and trying to recreate their own versions of the movie on public roads. We can't even have our kids sitting in front of the house because they're scared. Because we're scared that if something gets spun out of control, it's going to come flying in your property or you're towards your children. So you can't have that. You can't cross the streets because you're not, your kids aren't safe to do that. Dozens of protesters marched outside the clothes set as camera rigs were set up and a vehicle used in the movie was transported behind privacy screens, guarded heavily by security. Campaigner Lori Argumento held up a picture of her niece who was killed by a street racer. Bethany was 23 years old. She had her whole life ahead of her. She had a little girl that was six years old. I had to identify my niece's body on Mother's Day. I had to tell her six-year-old daughter that her mommy is never coming home. She still doesn't understand that mommy's never coming home. This is the reality of street racing. People's lives are lost. I did her makeup for her funeral instead of her wedding. The production company should speak up and say, have their idol actors speaking up and voicing how this is not okay. Speak up for the people that get to suffer accidents like this and say, this is not what we promote the movie for. The Los Angeles Police Department says there have been reports of 667 takeovers since the start of 2022, with more than 2,000 citations issued and 439 vehicles impounded. Other police data suggests there have been around 600 arrests this year alone. Dangerous illegal street takeovers, where crowds, sometimes in the thousands, take over a busy road or intersection. They block it off for races and stunts, hampering police attempts to get through the crowds quickly and make arrests. Many of them are filmed for social media. We want NBC Universal to live up to their social impact statement. We want them to care about the communities in real life, not just on a website, on words, and to mitigate the impacts and to do effective actions to stem this rising problem. They are helping to glorify it. NBC Universal did not respond to a request by Reuters for an interview. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. The Live Golf Tour has convinced six more top 100 golfers to defect from the PGA Tour to join the Saudi-funded league, including second-ranked in the world Cameron Smith. The 29-year-old won the British Open earlier this summer and adds to their growing list of star players. According to James Ward, who's a senior editor at Golf Today, Smith's edition represents one of their biggest gets to date, as previously Liv had attracted mainly players whose best days were behind them. I think the whole key with Liv and the PGA Tour, Dave, is the future is unknown and you have to capture the future. The Live Tour has captured the past. 
that's where they started with with Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, even Brooks Kepka, Ian Poulter, Lee Westwood, Sergio Garcia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, in terms of a tipping point, Cameron Smith is probably one of their biggest gets to date because he won a major championship this year at the Old Course at St Andrews. Ward told me that though Liv has a lot of momentum right now, there are still several potential roadblocks that could derail them. Like the fact that players get no world ranking points through their events, the league has no TV contract, and maybe the most important, their members have no guaranteed admittance to the four majors. At the end of the day, if you can't play in the legacy events, like the major championships, then the question comes down to what does Liv provide besides a bigger paycheck? Ward says the PGA Tour previously underestimated Liv's draw, but has finally had a wake-up call. They've responded by increasing event purses, providing extra compensation to the most popular players through their player impact program. They're giving rookies a signing bonus to join and even providing travel expenses to those who don't make the weekend cut. All of these are shocking changes for the long-standing league. This has never happened before. In other words, when you joined the PGA Tour, your sole money that you had received came from your ability to compete on the tour. Whatever you earned, you kept. If you didn't earn any money that week because you missed the cut, that was the nature of the business. It was a complete meritocracy. Liv's next event starts Friday in Boston. And in tennis news, Venus Williams lost her opening match at the U.S. Open yesterday in straight sets. It was the second straight time that the seven-time Grand Slam champion bowed out in the first round at Flushing Meadows. The 42-year-old, who has not announced any intentions to retire, won the event back here in 2000 and 2001. On the men's side, 22-time Grand Slam champion Rafael Nadal survived after losing the opening set in a match that took more than three hours to complete. The 36-year-old last year withdrew from the Wimbledon semifinals with a torn abdominal muscle but showed no signs of any lingering effects. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Coming up, Taiwan is taking a firm stand against China's ongoing military activity. The self-ruled island promised to use naval and air forces and coastal firepower when necessary. And a British think tank calling for reform. They say officers are more concerned with being woke than with tackling crime. That and more when we return. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What did today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why. What's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. An official warning of war from Taiwan. As Beijing makes military activity around the island the new norm, Taiwan responds with warning shots and a vow to take strong countermeasures to defend itself.
We will use naval and air forces and coastal firepower to dispel PLA, People's Liberation Army, aircraft and ships that enter our territorial seas and airspace. Taiwan's defense ministry delivered the warning Wednesday. When Chinese unmanned drones enter our airspace, besides closely monitoring their activities, we will also elevate air defense missile alerts to track the unmanned aerial vehicle. But if they are not dispelled, and if we determine that there is a danger posed to us, we will exercise the right of self-defense in accordance with operational orders and counterattack. One day before, Taiwan fired warning shots at a Chinese drone for the first time. It had been buzzing around an offshore islet. That action followed Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen's order to take strong countermeasures against Chinese provocations. Taiwan has repeatedly complained of Chinese drones flying close to the small group of islands it controls. They're located near China's coast. Ever since U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan earlier this month, China has been holding military exercises around the island. And the PLA will try to make a new rule of navigation in Taiwan Strait if the new military uh, normal status uh, has been successfully established. And the PLA then will gradually change the international waterway uh, of Taiwan Strait from high sea for navigation freedom to inland sea of China. And after the new military uh, normal status has been uh, consolidated, the PLA will reject the passage of foreign uh, naval ship uh, uh, through Taiwan Strait unless under its permission. The PLA stands for the People's Liberation Army, the formal name for China's military. Beijing claims Taiwan as part of mainland Chinese territory. Democratically governed Taiwan rejects that claim. Taiwan's current government used to rule China, but fled to Taiwan after losing a civil war. Still, the Chinese Communist Party has vowed to take the island by force if necessary. The U.S. doesn't have formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan, but Washington is bound by law to provide the island with arms to defend itself. Japan is increasing its defense budget and building missiles that they previously didn't allow themselves to. It's part of a military expansion to counter threats from China and Russia. Japan says it will develop and mass-produce a cruise missile and a high-velocity ballistic missile. They will be able to strike at greater distances beyond the current range limit in Japan's constitution. The Defense Ministry didn't specify the exact range of the weapons, nor say how many they plan to make. But if deployed along the Okinawa Island chain in the southwest of Japan, the weapons could have enough range to reach targets in mainland China. This month, China fired five ballistic missiles into waters less than 100 miles from Japan, prompting alarm about China's regional ambitions. And nearly half of Australians believe the Chinese Communist Party will launch a military attack on their country at some point. That's according to research by the International and Security Affairs Program at the Australian Institute. The result was part of a survey involving over a thousand adults living in Australia. The other part of the survey asked the same number of people living in Taiwan. Compared to Taiwanese people, Australians appear to be more afraid of an attack from the communist country. Although Taiwan is only about 100 miles from China, while Australia is located thousands of miles away. 
More specifically, nearly one in ten Australians responded that they believe China would attack Australia soon, while just one in 20 Taiwanese think Beijing would attack Taiwan soon. In the case of a Chinese attack, 57% of Australians say the United States would help defend Australia. While 11% said they didn't think so, the rest were undecided. The research comes as relations between China and Australia are at a low point. It started when the former Australian government called for an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. This led to the Chinese Communist Party leveraging its economy against Australia, like imposing high tariffs or bans on Australian goods exported to China. Another recent escalation hit after Chinese military forces bullied an Australian military aircraft. That's as it was conducting routine surveillance in the South China Sea. A British think tank is calling on the Home Secretary to use its power to reform the police force. The group says officers are more concerned with being woke than with tackling crime. This report comes from NTD's Trevor Piper. A new report by the policy exchange think tank warns that the public feel police are being distracted by woke causes. Former Detective Chief Inspector David Spencer, who wrote the report, said the police force has lost its way over the last decade and that significant intervention is needed. The report noted how common crimes like residential burglaries and theft are rarely solved. While attending a raid with specialist officers, Prime Minister Boris Johnson was asked if he thought the police is too woke. He said this. Well, I've just, I've just seen them. I tell you what, I've just seen a bunch of police officers who, who woke quite a lot of drug dealers this morning. And they, they woke them long before they were expecting to have their, uh, their breakfast. They, when they, woke, they woke them uh, with, uh, with warrants and they woke them with the, the news that they were under arrest for uh, causing misery uh, in, in the communities of, of, of London. And that's, a, that's what I want the police to do. That's what Pretty wants them to do. Uh, I thank them for what they're doing. It's, it's, it, they're, they do an absolutely fantastic job. The policy exchange report said police should not get involved in partisan political acts like kneeling for BLM and wearing badges on their uniform. He says this has the potential to be hugely damaging to public confidence because the police are meant to be impartial. Videos of police can easily be broadcast across social media. So the report also says police officers need to consider how their actions affect how they are viewed. Trevor Piper, NTD News. And coming up, a remarkable American teen who started his own business at age seven and penned his own biography at 14. He lost his life in a kayak accident in June, but his legacy continues to inspire others. We have his incredible story after the break. A dazzling pink diamond, described as one of the world's most pure and most saturated, could fetch more than $21 million when it goes up for bid in October. At over 11 carats, the cushion-shaped gem is called Williamson Pink Star, as a tribute to two other pink diamonds. One is the CTF Pink Star, which sold for a record $71 million at auction in 2017. The other is Williamson Stone, an over 23-carat diamond given to Queen Elizabeth as a wedding gift by Canadian geologist John Williamson. It was discovered in his mine in Tanzania. The Williamson Pink Star also originates from that mine.
They are exceptionally rare in nature. Um, if you look at diamonds, you know, we all know as diamonds as being beautiful, wonderful, natural beauties. Uh, on of diamonds, only 5% of them are colored diamonds. Of colored diamonds, only 3% of those are pink. You then add in the extra factors like it being over 10 carats, internally flawless, and type 2A, and you get right down to the pinnacle, something that is truly, truly phenomenally rare in nature. Top quality colored stones are prized by the super wealthy. Many are expected to bid on the gem when it is auctioned on October 5th, since the stone is so exceptionally rare. Ahead of the auction, the diamond will go on tour to Dubai, Singapore and Taipei before arriving in Hong Kong. And an ambitious American teen passed away in a tragic kayak accident at age 14, one month after releasing his autobiography. His legacy continues to inspire others. Hey everyone, I'm Cole. Meet 14-year-old Kevin Cooper from Barrel, Utah, who went under the pseudonym of Cole Summers. Cole here. It's been about a week since I published the ebook version of my autobiography, Don't Tell Me I Can't. Kevin posted this video on his Twitter account a month before his tragic death in a kayaking accident. We, we had no idea the reach he was starting to have online. Obviously, that's, that's been something that's been very uplifting for us, is seeing how many people he's encouraged and inspired. He was already making waves on Twitter, sharing with homeschool communities his mindset and education, many naming him a prodigy. To say Kevin was ambitious is an understatement. At seven years old, he began his first business breeding rabbits. He started a farm at seven years old. He owned his first truck at eight, a payment for replacing cylinder head valves for a neighbor. He grew his farm into a 347-acre ranch by nine, a house at 10, which he renovated, and bought his first tractor at 11, a birthday present to himself. By 14, Kevin had a plan to tackle hay and farming aquifer depletion, a solid solution to an environmental crisis where he lived. And Kevin never stopped playing. He, he took joy in everything he did. He was a character. He loved to have fun, try to make people happy. Both of Kevin's parents were homebound, as his mother is partially sighted and his father is a U.S. veteran who uses a wheelchair. This led them to homeschool and then unschooling. It turned into unschooling when he was six, and he became enthralled with studying uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Kevin wrote his autobiography when he was 14. He called it, Don't Tell Me I Can't, an ambitious homeschooler's journey. The book covers the story of his family and what shaped his mindset. He shares the ups and downs, successes and setbacks, encouraging other homeschool and unschool families. He didn't have all the answers, but he figured if he kept trying, he was gonna succeed. Even when he wrote the book, he wouldn't tell anybody local at all. He wouldn't earn every sale through earning people's respect online. Sadly, he was never able to realize all of his goals. On June 11, the 14-year-old boy lost his life while kayaking in Utah's Newcastle Reservoir with his older brother, who has autism. Throughout all of his impressive projects, his parents are most proud of how he cared for others, his family, his animals, and the earth. He treated everybody around him with love and kindness. We tell people that uh, are a lot more capable than what the systems of education and, and everything else around us leaves us to believe that we can do on, as on as individuals 
You would tell people that they are more capable than they've been led to believe. Let's hope Kevin's legacy inspires others. A moving report of a precious life. Well, that's all for tonight's news. Thanks for joining in. I'm Stephanie Cox.